Well, hey friends, it's good to be back with you after a few weeks away, and I'm especially glad to be here for the exciting moment we've come to as a church. In case you missed the earlier announcement, after many months of searching and prayer, the search team and elders are unanimously recommending Joshua Clough to be our next senior pastor. Now, I wasn't on the search team, but I've had two opportunities to connect with Joshua, and Karen and I were able to spend some time with he and Claire. We talked theology and preaching and leadership and New England and running and all the joys and challenges of the senior pastor role at Grace Chapel. And, and based on all that I've seen and heard, I am happy to offer my wholehearted endorsement of Joshua and Claire. I believe him to be a thoughtful and engaging preacher, a strong and collaborative leader, and a wise and caring pastor. Now, the search committee set high standards, and rightly so. Grace is a unique church with an influential role to play at a formative time in history. I believe God has honored the work of the committee and all of your prayers, and has brought us just the right person to lead Grace Chapel into the future. So I encourage you to check out his bio at grace.org senior pastor search, to be here next Sunday, to hear him preach, and then to cast your vote if you're a member. Now, I'm going to get out of the way for the next couple of weeks so you can enter freely into that process, but you can be sure I'll be in prayer for all of you as you seek and discern God's leading. But as I've been saying all year, I'm not done yet. And after three weeks off, you better believe I'm excited to be preaching again. So let's turn our attention to the scriptures and to what the Lord might have to say to us today about our lives and faith and church. Some of you may be familiar with a popular pastor and preacher named Alistair Begg. Begg has been the senior pastor of Parkside Church in Ohio for over 40 years and has had a national radio ministry for most of those years. He's a gifted communicator, a responsible scholar, a fine pastor, and has this Scottish accent that makes him sound super smart and spiritual. Not that I'm jealous or anything. Well, Begg has come under attack recently regarding some counsel he offered to a Christian woman on a podcast. She was wondering if she should attend the wedding of her grandson, who was marrying a transgender person. Now, she doesn't believe the marriage is in keeping with God's design, but she does love her grandson. And Beg, Beg was clear that while he too holds to a historic Christian view of marriage, given the circumstances, she should feel free to attend the wedding as an expression of love for her grandson. He acknowledged that everyone might not agree with them and that it might not be the right answer for every person in every situation. Well, Begg was widely criticized for his counsel, accused of selling out his faith, abandoning scripture, and encouraging this woman and her grandson to sin. And his long-running radio show was promptly dropped by the American Family Radio Network. In other words, he was canceled. Now, I begin with that story to illustrate a disturbing trend in the church today to shut down people who might challenge or stretch traditional ways of understanding and living out our faith. Many Christians, it seems, are so certain that their point of view is the right one and the only right one that they not only refuse to consider another point of view, 
they punish and dismiss the person who dared to ask the question. Whether you agree with Begg's advice or not, surely the question is worthy of conversation and consideration. And surely a fellow believer and faithful servant like Begg is worth, worthy of our hearing and, and a respect. But it turns out this tendency to shut down dissenting voices and difficult conversations with malice and even violence has been a problem for people of faith for a long time. And today, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is going to confront it. Last week, Pastor John got us started on part two of our Kingdom Come series. During the season of Lent, we're focusing on the final week of Christ's earthly life, as recorded in the final chapters of Mark's Gospel. And in particular, we're focusing on what it means to pray the words, Thy will be done. And what it means is surrender. Surrender isn't an easy thing for most of us to do. It sounds very un-American. It sounds like weakness. It sounds like defeat. But as we make our way through Mark's Gospel, we're going to discover that when it's properly understood and practiced, surrender can be one of the most profound and powerful moves a person can make. Last week, John described surrender as the currency of the kingdom of God. I like that metaphor. Surrender is the way things are obtained or accomplished in God's economy. Well, today we're going to look at a series of conversations, controversial conversations, that took place between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Mark presents five of them, one after the other, in such a way that we feel the intensity of these conversations and the brilliance of Jesus' response. I'd like us to walk through the first three of those conversations, but to take two passes at them. First, to expose the ugly tendency behind those challenges, and then to discover the wisdom and the power of surrender. Let's begin in Mark 11, beginning at verse 11, 27 through 28. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking to the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now, it was common in those days for rabbis to sit or walk in the courtyard surrounding the temple and teach their disciples. But since it was a public space, anyone who was interested was welcome to listen in on the conversations. You might think of it as an ancient form of, of podcasting. Well, on this occasion, three groups of religious leaders have joined the crowd. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, in modern terms, we might think of the chief priests as the clergy of the day, overseeing the ministry of the temple. The teachers of the law would be comparable to our seminary professors and theologians. And the elders would be comparable to lay leaders in the community, people we might also call elders or deacons. And these leaders consider themselves the spiritual watchdogs over the community. I'm sure we're all familiar with the role of military police who maintain and enforce order in the military community. 
These religious leaders thought of themselves as the religious police of the day. And clearly they are in police mode as they confront Jesus on this day. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Now, by these things, they were most likely referring to the events of the first two days in what we call Holy Week. On Sunday, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem to cheering crowds who welcomed him as as, as a kind of savior or messiah even. And Jesus let them do it. On Monday, Jesus had cleared the temple, chasing out the money changers and upsetting the normal religious ramp up to Passover. Now, these were both disturbing and provocative actions. So, on the one hand, we can't blame them for for wondering exactly who Jesus was and, and what he was trying to do. They never encountered anyone who said and did the kinds of things Jesus was saying and doing. These leaders had a right and even a responsibility to be asking questions. But when we listen carefully, we realize that they weren't asking out of a sense of curiosity with a desire to understand and learn. They were acting out of a desire for control, wanting to preserve their authority and the status quo. Their follow-up question gives them away. And who gave you authority to do this? In other words, who do you think you are? We're the ones in charge around here. We decide who says and does what in the temple courts. They didn't want to know who Jesus was and where he came from. They just wanted him to go away. They weren't interested in what was happening. They just wanted to shut it down and get things back to normal. And there it is, that ugly religious obsession with certainty, that that we already have all the answers. An obsession with categories. We get to decide who's in and who's out. With control, we like things the way they are. Now, we'll see how Jesus responds to all this in just a moment. For now, let's let's jump to the next conversation in chapter 12 and verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now here we meet two new groups of religious people. The Pharisees were considered the most spiritual people in the land, a reputation they wore with great pride and ostentation. The Sadducees were less fervent in their beliefs, but they were the power brokers because of their wealth and status. And these groups resented two points of view on the question of paying taxes to Rome. The Pharisees were opposed to it on spiritual grounds, arguing that it implied compromise with a pagan empire. The Sadducees supported paying taxes for pragmatic reasons, to preserve peace with Rome, not to mention their own power and status. 
Now, if, if we were looking for a comparable controversy in the church today, uh, it might have been the recent conflict over masks or no masks during COVID, shutting down or staying open. It was both a political and a spiritual controversy, and sometimes one disguised as the other. But once again, Mark makes it clear that these leaders weren't really interested in hearing Jesus out. They already had their points of view and had already separated themselves into camps. They weren't interested in a fresh take on the question, and they certainly weren't about to change their minds. They were simply trying to trap Jesus into choosing one side or the other. Are you one of us or are you one of them? They wanted to know. It's not a very flattering portrait of religious people, is it? How quick we are to slap labels on people, to categorize them without hearing them out. Well, the third controversy is perhaps the most ridiculous and the most revealing, beginning at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offering for his offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? What is it about religious people that we insist on coming up with these tests of orthodoxy? We, we poke fun at medieval theologians for debating how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. But the modern church has seen plenty of such controversies. Free will versus predestination. Which translation of the Bible we should use? When and how Christ will return? When I was graduating from seminary and looking for my first church, a denominational leader told me not to bother applying in his state if I didn't hold to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, if you're not familiar with that controversy, you might be better off. Now, it's not that these questions aren't worth asking or debating. It's just that they're not worth canceling someone simply because they hold a different view on a complicated question. And in this particular case, Mark reminds us that the Sadducees had already decided there was no resurrection of the dead. So, so they weren't interested in the conversation or in Jesus' point of view. They simply wanted to make him look foolish and prove that they were right. As we're going to find out, they had sorely underestimated who they were messing with. So these are three of the five challenges religious leaders raised with Jesus in the middle of that holy week. And because he didn't give the right answers, the answers they were looking for, by the end of the week, Jesus was dead. 
where does it come from? This obsession religious people have with being right, with making ourselves the arbiters of who's in and who's out, with shutting down difficult questions and punishing those who test and stretch our point of view. It shows up in every religious tradition, including Christianity. As early as the 4th century, under the so-called Christian Empire of Constantine, those who challenged or questioned fine points of doctrine were banished, imprisoned, and killed. In the Middle Ages, the Spanish Inquisition sought out, tortured, and killed so-called heretics for holding beliefs that many of us hold today. And why do we insist on being so certain about things. Don't we remember there was a time the church was certain that the sun revolved around the earth? Certain that the Bible shouldn't be translated into the language of common people? Certain that slavery was ordained by God? We were wrong about all those things. And that wrongness and the certainty with which we held it caused great harm to fellow believers and to the church's witness to the world. Now, please understand, I'm not saying we can't be certain about certain things. God's love for all people, our salvation through faith in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, the presence of God in our lives, the promise of eternal life. I mean, these things and more are taught clearly in the scriptures. They've been affirmed by the church from the very beginning. They become real to many of us in our lived experience. The Christian faith is firmly grounded in historical events, reliable scriptures, scientific discovery, intellectual rigor, and in the personal experience of billions of people from every walk of life and every nation on earth. But that doesn't mean we're right about everything. It doesn't mean there isn't more to learn about the work and ways of God. And it certainly doesn't mean there isn't room for question, for debate, for disagreement, and even for doubt in our individual faith journeys and in our faith communities. When our certainty slams the door on fresh thinking, when our religious categories cause division and harm, when our need for control compels us to cancel people or ideas because they upset the status quo, we not only stifle our spiritual growth, we drive away the very people we're wanting to reach. I was talking with a friend recently who was concerned for his grandson who had grown up in the church but as a young adult had walked away from Christian faith and embraced a very different religious tradition. It had made things very contentious between the two of them, almost to the breaking point. I could hear the disappointment and frustration in this grandfather's voice as he talked about trying to get through to his grandson. 
It's a disappointment and a frustration that many of us have felt with people in our lives. And as my friend confessed, we don't always handle it well. So what's a Christian to do in such a situation? Well, for one thing, let's not allow the disagreement to become a battleground or to drive a wedge between us and them. Rather than challenging or correcting someone's belief system, why not get curious about it? Ask them what they find helpful or compelling about it. Ask what they find lacking in the faith they were raised with. Read what they're reading. Listen to who they're listening to. Try to find some common ground. What might happen if we let disagreement become a point of connection rather than contention? If we let questions and doubts draw us together and trusted the Spirit to use those conversations to bring us closer to those we love and closer to Himself. It seems to me that that's what Alistair Begg was suggesting to that grandmother. And for the record, I have given similar counsel to people in similar circumstances. If we want God's will to be done in the life of someone we love, Sometimes we need to surrender our certainty, our categories, and our need for control, and instead choose curiosity, connection, and confidence in God. Now, I'll say that again because it's kind of a mouthful. Sometimes praying, Thy will be done, means surrendering our certainty, our categories, and our need for control and instead choosing curiosity, connection, and confidence in God. And when we do that, most of the time we'll find it's not our beliefs we need to surrender, but the posture with which we hold them. So let's revisit those three conversations, and this time focus on how Jesus responds to them. Let's see what we can learn from Jesus about handling questions, doubts, and controversy in a Christ-like way. In the first conversation back in chapter 11, the religious leaders challenged Jesus' authority to do the things he was doing. Mark tells us, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Now notice, Jesus doesn't have a problem with questions, or even with this question. It was actually the question he wanted them to be asking. He just wasn't going to answer it for them. He wanted them to wrestle with it, to consider the evidence, to examine their own hearts, and to come to their own conclusions about him. So instead of giving the right answer, as we are so often quick to do, he asks another question to, to keep the conversation going. And when the leaders refuse to engage the question for fear of being wrong or looking foolish, Jesus is okay leaving the question unanswered, hanging there. He wants them to take responsibility for the question and the answer. 
and he wants the same from us. Well, in chapter 12, they, they questioned him on a matter of faith and politics. Now, we are too familiar with those questions, aren't we? Should God's people pay taxes to Caesar or not? And once again, they weren't really interested in the question or the discussion. They just wanted to know whose side he would be on, the Herodians or the Pharisees. But Jesus refuses to take sides, as if it was a simple question, as if one side had it completely right and the other had it completely wrong. And once again, he refuses to answer the question for them and instead asks them another question. Taking a coin, he asked, Whose image is this? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. You see, he wants them to figure it out, to think it through, and he wants the same from us. Faith and politics is as complicated now as it was then. There is no one right answer or party or position. We have to think about it and be in dialogue with each other and come to the best conclusions we can. But if we're going to do that well, we're going to need to practice the discipline of surrender. Well, thirdly, they questioned him about the resurrection and the life to come. But they weren't really questioning, were they? Mark tells us they had already made up their minds. They were certain there was no resurrection from the dead. So Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, we don't have time for a deep dive here, but I'm guessing that many of us have stumbled over this teaching, especially those who are or have been happily married. Will people who have been special to us in this life no longer be special to us in the life to come? Well, the short answer is we don't really know. Based on what we can discern from other passages of Scripture, it seems that everything that's good and true and beautiful about being human in this life will be exponentially more good and true and beautiful in the life to come. <laughs> but Jesus is reminding these leaders and us that our earthly minds and categories are simply not able to comprehend these realities. <laughs> in the same way, maybe, that a, that a pre-born child who feels close to their mother in the womb can't possibly imagine how much closer they will feel to their mother once they're free from that cramped space and can relate to her face to face. Their relationship will be very different, but exponentially better. And so it might be for the relationships we bring with us into the life to come, including marriage. I mean, for starters, Consider the fact that your spouse will no longer do that annoying thing he or she does, and neither will you. 
So Jesus reminds these earthly leaders, these religious leaders, that their earthly knowledge and categories are sometimes inadequate for comprehending spiritual truth. But then he doubles down on their lack of understanding. Now about the dead rising, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now keep in mind that the Sadducees were among the most highly educated, highly regarded religious leaders in the nation. They thought they understood the scriptures, but they didn't. They thought they knew what God was like and what he was up to, but they didn't. They had completely missed a fundamental truth about the nature and purposes of God. They thought they were right. In fact, they were certain they were right. But they weren't. They were wrong. Not just about this, but about many things. And their unwillingness to acknowledge that possibility, their refusal to listen to Jesus and to rethink some of their long and deeply held convictions, caused them and the nation they were leading to miss their Messiah. Not just to miss him, but to kill him. That's where unchecked certainty and categories and the need for control can lead. And if you think I'm being melodramatic here, Jesus actually tells a story about these troubling tendencies. And Mark places that story right here in the middle of these conversations. It's a parable about a vineyard owner who, after planting a beautiful vineyard and leasing it to some tenants, sends his servants to collect the rent. But again and again, instead of giving the vineyard owner his due, they beat his servants and send them back to the owner empty-handed. In a last-ditch effort to preserve his relationship with the tenants, he sends his son to reason with them and collect the rent. But instead of respecting the son and listening to him, they kill him and throw his body out of the vineyard. And the religious leaders of the day, who were steeped in the scriptures and certain of their beliefs, were about to do the same thing to Jesus. So, what are we learning here about surrender? And what does it mean for our individual faith journeys and for our church community and for our witness to the world? Well, the big idea is that sometimes praying thy will be done means surrendering our certainty, our categories, and our need for control and exchanging them for curiosity, connection, and confidence in God. When we exchange curiosity for certainty, we open our minds to learning and to a more complete understanding of God and His ways. When we exchange categories for connection, we find common ground with people 
that can lead both of us closer to God. When we exchange our need for control with confidence in God, we're free to sit with uncertainty and doubt and to wait for things to become clear in God's good time. So in terms of our personal faith, it means not being afraid of questions or doubts or of disagreements. Jesus had no problem with questions. He asks hundreds of them in the Gospels. We don't need to fear questions and doubts and disagreements. We need to follow them, wrestle with them, let them lead us to a deeper knowledge of God and his ways. In terms of our church life, it means holding space for questions and doubts. It means not walking out on each other when we disagree, whether it's about faith or politics or whether or not to attend a wedding. It means being in dialogue with each other. It means being willing to say, tell me more, or I never thought of it that way, or I may be wrong. And when it comes to those who have walked away from faith or who embrace another faith, we make our differences a point of connection rather than a point of contention. We respect each other enough to listen and learn, remembering that we're all on a journey, that none of us has it completely right, and that the Spirit can use relationships and conversation to lead all of us closer to the truth. And finally, as we said earlier, surrendering our certainty doesn't mean that we can't be sure of our salvation. In fact, in in one of his letters, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life that you may know that you have eternal life. But notice, that knowledge, that certainty, isn't based on what we believe, but on who we trust. That's an important distinction. Our certainty doesn't rest on what we believe, but on who we trust. And that's where the religious people of Jesus' day went wrong. They were so hung up on the what that they missed the who. They missed Jesus. So for our own sake and for the sake of those we love, let's not make that same mistake. Our faith doesn't rest on our knowledge of the Bible or our doctrinal statements or our religious practices or our righteous behavior. Our faith rests on the person and work of Christ. His beautiful life, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, and the promise of his coming again to put all things right, including each of us. And of that, we can be sure. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom to trust you with our questions and doubts and disagreements. 
We'll take a moment right now to name one or two of them and bring them to you. Forgive us, Lord, for the times we have been so certain or stubborn or self-righteous that we've done harm to others and to the goodness of Christ and his gospel. We take a moment now to confess those times and those failures to you. Help us, Lord, to hold tightly to you as we hold loosely to those things that drive us apart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.